The business of culture, the culture of business, creatives, media and technology, markets, policy, world affairs. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Really, that kind of obligation I felt to my family spurred me on for years and years and years. And I felt like I was just so lucky. I had this spot that everyone wanted. And Goldman was very good at telling you, this is the job everyone wants. You're nothing without us. You can only leave Goldman once. So I was so afraid to leave. That's the big joke of it all, Robin. Like I really thought I was a prisoner, but the joke was the door was always unlocked. I could have left any time. Jamie Fiore Higgins, author of Bully Market, my story of money and misogyny at Goldman Sachs. With us for the hour, stick around. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. Shout out to our listeners on WVTF, Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can message me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Joining us from a secure, undisclosed location, i.e. a basement in New Jersey, is Jamie Fiore Higgins. Her book is Bully Market, My Story of Money and Misogyny at Goldman Sachs. And this is very rare in that Jamie was a managing director at Goldman Sachs. I mean, this is the brass ring, one of just 8% of Goldman employees to earn that title. She managed top equity clients on $100 billion in stock while also running the trainee and internship programs and recruiting. And it's super rare for an empty level person to come out with a tell-all like this. And let me also say that Jamie and I were in the same analyst class at the long-changed equities division back in 1998. And when my wife heard her on the Dax Shepard podcast, what is it called? Armchair Expert? Yes. She's like, you're not going to believe this story. She also had 34 interviews and went through Goldman Sachs. And small world that I get to have this conversation with you 24 years later. How are you? I am well. I'm so excited to be here. I love that we were there at the same time and knew each other. So this is like coming full circle. Full circle. Let me tell you what drew me to you. You were very chill. As you write in the book, you were not like the other people. Uh, the Louboutin, what are they called? The shoes, the very fluted the shoes. Louboutins, you, yes, the Louboutins, yes. The Jimmy you were, shoes. You were very proud of your New Jersey upbringing. You were very proud that you were not there doing the same bottle service things in training as some of the Ivy League people and the kind of the Seven Sisters people were doing. You were very proud of your New Jersey roots. We were talking about TJ Maxx or something at the old headquarters in one New York plaza sitting outside talking about lunch. And we were, I guess, both misfits at Goldman Sachs. I did go to an Ivy League school, but I took this job I didn't have anything else to do. They were recruiting like crazy. The bull market was nuts. But you wore it on your sleeve that you were an outsider and you came from immigrant American roots, blue collar roots, and you were you were doing this to make your family proud. And to read that in this book right now is just, it's a treat and it's surreal for me. Oh my gosh, I can't imagine. Yeah, you were there. You totally got it too. You know, and for me, it was super, it didn't take long for me to realize that I didn't fit in, but 
based on what I saw, I really wasn't that interested in joining that crew. Here's the deal, though. We both were ineluctably drawn to this place. In my Mm. case, these guys and Morgan Stanley and everybody took over the various restaurants and inns at Princeton and all the other Ivies then. They couldn't hire people fast enough for investment banking. But people forget it was a roaring 1990s bull market on the eve of the kind of the dot-com. And so there were aggressive recruiters. In your case, you write in the book about a mesmerizing personality. She almost sounded like a hologram who came to your school and said, don't feel like an outsider. You belong at Goldman Sachs. And remind us the words that they use to kind of anesthetize you, bring you to the culture. Yeah. So for me, I was entering my senior year, my senior year in, at Bryn Mawr and got a pretty clear directive from my parents that they expected me to get the best paying job possible out of graduation. And to your point, in the late 90s, that was Wall Street. We graduated in a time where there was abundant offers. And there was an event at Bryn Mawr in the alumni house, which ironically, I never really had been to unless I was picking up side jobs, waitressing for the alums who would come to lunch there. And there was this event and this woman took the stage. There was a regal look about her. She was, you know, there was a gold. There was a Goldman glow. I'll tell you that. Oh my gosh, there was a Goldman glow. And the tagline that year was minds wide open. And she said, we are tired of hiring with all due respect to my University of Pennsylvania neighbors, but we're tired of hiring the Wharton grads down the street. We want liberal arts majors. We want varying opinions. All are welcome. We want to break through the glass ceiling. We want people like you. And I just was so wowed that I went back to my dorm that night. I'll never forget it. My feet were killing me from wearing heels. Um, and I said to my mom, I don't even know what Goldman Sachs does, but I want to work there. In truth, I really wasn't sure. I mean, going to Bryn Mawr, being a math major, so many of my peers went on to graduate school or to work for nonprofits. Very few went into the business sect. So I wasn't 100% sure what Goldman did, but I knew they were best at everything because in her intro, they were ranked number one in X, in Y, in Z. And... I just wanted to be like her. She was smart. She was sharp, but yet she was also really kind. And after her presentation, spent time talking to all of us. And she just seemed to be the kind of person I wanted to be. So I made it my goal to get a job there. And here's some interesting foreshadowing. Remind me to come back to her because you were also put in this recruiting role. And for all you know, you were that personification to other young 20-something women at Bryn Mawr and various schools across the country. You didn't know what was going on in her personal life at Goldman Sachs. But I fast forward to training, and we were both there, and you introducing yourself to some of the other people and the awkward silence and when you told them that you commute from New Jersey and somebody said, Hoboken, that's a great scene. No, <laughs> I commute from the suburbs. I live with my parents. And then the, the discomfort you know, sartorially, the privilege around it, seeing people hook up, seeing people do lines in the bathroom. Uh, I I too was shocked that all of this stuff, there was the sense that people had already made it, whether your father was a client at Goldman Sachs and hooked you up with a prized two-year analyst position, or whether you were kind of coasting from some Ivy League school and just biding your time until private equity or an MBA, 
there was this idea that, you know, I already made it. I, I'll put in the 80 hours a week and everything, but this is my life now. This is the life. Yeah. And, and, you know, I know I'm not the only person who started at the firm, you know, who came from more modest means, but the overwhelming majority of people I interacted with, they seem to just speak kind of this different language of affluence. I'll never forget telling some of the analysts who were in my larger group that I had 40 interviews. They had only had a handful because whose neighbor was a partner, whose father was a client of the firm. A lot of them lived in apartments that were obviously parent funded because although we were paid well at Goldman, I don't know if we were paid well enough to have a, you know, a, a single in Soho apartment. No, I mean, the arrangement back then, you were paid somewhere from forty to $48,000 in 1998. And yes. as you describe in the book, what's used as a carrot and stick throughout your tenure at Goldman Sachs was the bonus pool. You could obviously make multiples of that. Giving your life away to this company, pulling 80-hour weeks, were you, were you at one New York plaza at the bottom of the island for the majority of your career? I was in New York plaza from 1998 until 20... I want to say it was 2010 that we moved to 200 West. And then I was in 200 West for the rest of my... Yeah, it was around 210. Because I remember when I first came back from maternity leave, I was still doing New York Plaza. And then from 2010 to 2016 in 200 West. Now, illustrate what it's like for you. You didn't live in Manhattan at the outset. I mean, you were in New Jersey and you were truly commuting. Yes, from day one. So early on in the in my career, and I don't know if you remember this, but the head of the training program would lock the doors at seven. Yeah, I do remember. And so you couldn't, I couldn't risk having a train be delayed just by five minutes and waltz in at 7.01. So I used to get to work at six, which would require me to take a train that left around 4.30 from a town that was 20 minutes closer to the city than I was. Mm. So I was kind of getting up at 3, 3.30, getting out the door by 4 to catch the 4.30 train to get to New York Plaza by 6 because I didn't want to get to New York Plaza by 7 and have it be 7.01 and then be locked out. And then during training, those you know, six, eight weeks of training every night we were going out. So we were either working late for our projects or doing these insane networking events, you know, booze cruises. Oh, yeah. They, they closed down Barney's one time for a fashion show. So I was getting home if I was lucky by midnight to get up at 3.45, to do it all again. So it was brutal. And when you were I, hell bent on proving that you could do this, that they that other people told you this is not you, you're not cut from this cloth. I just remember our conversation, for whatever it's worth. I don't know if I have a photographic memory or an episodic <laughs> memory. You wore it on your sleeves that you knew you were an outsider, as I was an outsider. I was a liberal arts person. I wrote for the college paper. I be honest, I hated that job. I flunked my Series 7 the first time around. I didn't take it seriously enough, but a lot was forgiven in that bull market. And I think there were a handful of us as misfits that were drawn to one another. But you, I remember you telling me that I'm going to prove this right. You, you actually told me the anecdote of pushing back in your job interview and asserting your math qualifications. Oh my gosh. I told you about the math proof story. 
Right, because there's yeah. constantly a society there that wants to, sh- whether they're saying, oh, you're Hoboken or you're not Ivy or something, they want to other you. And it's amazing to me that you withstood all of that and a lot more horrifically to become a managing director. But let's start with that. Let's start with the vetting process and 40 interviews and what you had to do to prove that you were worth hiring, period. Well, listen, I think our personalities, for better or for worse, are always kind of created during childhood. And so growing up for me, I had um, a lot of health issues. So I had um, a condition called scoliosis, which I know is very common. However, I had a fairly uncommon case. So my case was so severe that I needed surgical intervention because my spine was starting to put pressure on my heart and my lungs. Mm. So I had surgery as a young child and just from those very young ages was told, you know what? You might not survive the surgery or you might survive the surgery and never walk again. And, you know, I was fortunate. I had a wonderful team of surgeons. Um, They did a beautiful job. I was ambulatory afterwards. But then I was always faced with limitations. Like, you know, Jamie, because of your back, you're never going to really be able to be an athlete. Well, there was nothing more that I wanted was to prove people wrong about me. It's almost not necessarily a positive thing sometimes because, but I'm driven by it. And so when I went to Goldman, you know, coming out of Bryn Mawr with a, a, with a math degree, you know, I'll never forget going to my first, well, it wasn't my first interview. It was my first super day. So I had a couple on-campus interviews and then I interviewed at the Philadelphia office and it was constantly like, well, why are you here? You're a math major. You know, we want economics majors. We want finance majors. No, no, but here's the deal. You were a math major at Bryn Mawr, right? And right now that kind of, it's absurd that they're saying, why are you here? If we want the same cookie cutter people from Wharton, from Princeton economics majors, they would not have taken a public policy person. They would not take physics majors or philosophy majors. I mean, I- unpack this for me because I'm going to come back to it. Well, I think it kind of goes back to the big disconnect between what the firm wants to tell you, like that woman at Bryn Mawr who said I was welcome, and yet what I faced when I was in the businesses. So I'll never forget one of It was probably like my fifth interview. I'll never forget I was in the Philadelphia office and I was like so proud I had navigated the subway system <laughs> right. and SEPTA to get there. Yeah. And the guy held up my resume to the light to see if the watermark was in the right direction. And my body went cold because I didn't even know there was a watermark. And in reflection, I guess the guy who worked at Kinko's on City Line Avenue knew because what had brought my box of Crane's paper to get my resume printed, he printed them the right way. So it was always, I felt like I was always just being asked to like clear the next hurdle, clear the next hurdle, clear the next hurdle. And when I went to the super day, because after you go to like your on-campus interview and then you go to the local office for interviews, then you go to a super day and you know what a super day is, but for the, for the population, you go in and it's like speed dating. And you interview for like four hours straight. And every 30 minutes, you go into a different office with different people. And I didn't get the point at a certain point. And it's really intimidating because those glass offices overlooking the sprawling trading floor, overlooking the Statue of Liberty and everything, you feel the heat from the computers. You get senior partners, junior partners, traders, everybody who can't even get off of a phone call. Like, what are you vetting at this point? Maybe one person out of 20 is stumping me on a mind bender or brain teaser or something. But 
What exactly quality assurance are you getting by interview 34? I think they're just trying to see if people can handle it. Ah. So I never forget walking in, went into this conference room, and I was one of the only women in the room. And all there was was a bunch of guys with their Wall Street journals opened out. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, what am I doing here? And But I just wanted to prove people wrong. And so, you know, you make it through the interview process. I'll never forget the guy who asked me how many ping pong balls fit in a 747 and oh, he yeah. wanted me to work that through. And, and he didn't have the answer. I think he just wanted to see if he could almost break me, you know, and like have me just not turn beet red and cry. Um, and then when I finally got through that hurdle, I ended up on a desk and that's when I had the math proof problem. And so in that case, uh, the partner asked me the Monty Hall problem, which is that well-known game show where if you're given three doors, behind one door is a car, behind the other two are goats. If you reveal, you know, say, you know, um, they reveal that door number one is a goat and you chose door number two, should you switch? And what's the percentage of chances? And it's a well-known statistics and probability problem. And in my senior seminar at Bryn Mawr, I had studied it and I had told them that if you switch, you know, your chances increase to 66% and they vehemently disagreed, uh, pulled in all these people to tell me I was wrong. <laughs> And I didn't know what to do because I knew I was right. So I kind of, um, I agreed to disagree and I was escorted out that day. I was invited to come back the next day. So that night I called my math professor at Bryn Mawr. I wrote up a proof. I got a new suit because I only owned one suit and I didn't want to show up in the same suit the next day. And I wrote up the proof and I put copies on all the desks of the people who said I was wrong, proving them that I was right. And nobody ever said anything, but I got the job offer the next day. Mm. And I'll never forget my grandmother who lived with me at the time she was in her mid 80s. Oh, no, early 90s. And she wow. said to me, why would you want to work there? <laughs> They're so rude to you. And I said, you know, grandma, it's the job everyone wants. And they're paying me so much money. And she said to me, I know it's a lot of money, but what, what is it going to cost you? And that ended up being, you know, kind of that bit of nugget of wisdom that I really didn't listen to until years and years, years later. Um, but it was that constant, like, I'm going to show them, I'm going to show them. And even when I was in training, I was taunted because I was reading, you know, Wall Street 101 and, you know, the insiders, you know, Wall Street for dummies. And a lot of the guys at Goldman, they had been investing their own portfolio since middle school. So they would say to me, oh, my gosh, if you're reading this now, you're never going to catch up. You're never going to be competitive here. And like I said, there was nothing that motivated me more than proving someone else wrong. And I was just committed to showing them that I belong there. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Jamie Fiore Higgins, author of the hot-selling book, Bully Market, My Story of Money and Misogyny at Goldman Sachs. For 18 years, she was an executive at Goldman Sachs, rising to the level of managing director. It's really the brass ring. One of less than 10% of Goldman employees get that title. And it's very rare in that you came out and dished on the things that you did. I want to go back 
to training where they kept telling us, you know, the door was shut every morning in that auditorium on the, what was it? The 43rd floor of one New York Plaza. 43rd apparently where, floor, yeah. Apparently where a lot of liars poker took place, if I hear correctly, uh, mm. which is mentioned alongside your book. They always told us, and this was before Goldman was public, that you want to be long-term greedy. You never want to end up on the front page of the Wall Street Journal for the wrong reasons. And I tended to believe them. They were not as kind of overtly boom, boom room and locker room as the other Goldman Sachs, sub, as the other Wall Street subcultures, obviously Bear Stearns, the boiler rooms of Long Island and Staten Island, Lehman Brothers, some of the other rowdy places that fell. And yet I'm reading your book and you were quickly indoctrinated into a locker room culture, a, 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 a smart, ambitious woman on a trading floor where people actually have spreadsheets about the effability of women. Right. Do you remember the Facebooks? So I say it funny. It sounds funny now because I feel like Facebook was just coming in probably on college campuses back then. But Goldman, not even that was well before that. We, we we had things on campuses called Facebooks, which were yearbooks where you could right. see people's pictures. Yeah. And Goldman had a Facebook. It was called the Facebook. And every year, the incoming analyst and associate class, they would put out a Facebook. And the intention of the Facebook was, was, hey, everyone, welcome this new crop of employees. So again, Robin, I go back to kind of what the intention was, the good intention of it, and then kind of the dark underbelly of how it was really consumed and used. So these Facebooks were placed on every single current employee's desk with all the headshots, all the ID pictures of the new hires. And when I got to the desk, I started to experience what I call the white noise of Wall Street, this kind of bro locker room culture all around me, where the experienced guys on the desk would look at that Facebook and comment on who was good looking, who wasn't. Well, in that picture, look at what the size of her chest is. And hey, we should invite her out to coffee and offer to mentor I gotta, her. I got to tell you, as an analyst, as a person just hired, I would have been terrified of that banter. I, I, I thought that they had successfully told us in training that you guys don't go here. This is not what we do. We're long-term greedy. It's all about culture. But the fact that it was tolerated, suborned, and not only that, they look the other way. You documented in your book how many times you went to HR and were kind of ratted out in Costa Nostra way. I can't believe this was Goldman Sachs. I mean, how many women, successful women, did they bring in front of us in training? Abby Joseph Cohen, the Slotniks, other people to tell us yep. that this was all about culture. C-U-L-T-U-R-E. But don't you think it's interesting, though, that they talk about this long-term greedy culture of cultivating careers, but on the very first day, they're shaming you and locking you out and kicking you out and reveling in your embarrassment and shame? No, I can see that they want to put the fear of failure into people. And some other, I remember a guy, a British guy was chewed out in the front row for not tucking in his shirt. I remember the same Barney's catwalk event you're talking about we were admonished and chewed out as an analyst class for acting boorish that we didn't we didn't comport ourselves well out in the new york city street and you know i went off and i didn't know as nearly as long as you did it was kind of 2 years and to me it was a transactional culture and i was there for my pedigree initially and everything else that they hired but i was ultimately there to slap pitch books together and execute trades and deal with compliance and how much of that actually involved highfalutin culture? I'm not sure. 
it involved long weeks and desiring the bonus pool and everything else. And you could talk mm-hmm. about culture left and right until you turn blue in the face. But in reality, a lot of these people were unhappily married. A lot of them were having affairs. A lot of them were in psychological counseling, of which the benefits were great for a clear reason, right? Mm-hmm. You got to see how the sausage was made after you were thrown into the pool, after you finished your Series 7. Yeah. And and I feel like the first few years, I kind of just tried to ignore it, put my head down. I still was searching for that woman, Genevieve, who had come to campus, you know, and really searching for that type of person. And again, really wanting to make my family proud. I mean, my first year, I made more than my parents ever had. So I just really wanted to make it work. And then I found that as I got more senior, the toxicity became more targeted toward me. And then in addition, I started perpetuating it in order to survive. Hold that thought. We're talking to Jamie Fiore Higgins. The book is Bully Market, My Story of Money and Misogyny at Goldman Sachs. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full disclosure podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe, is fullDradio.com. Shout out to our radio listeners on Radio IQ, WVTF. That's Virginia Public Radio. Holler if you too would like full disclosure on your air. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Jamie Fiore Higgins. Her hot-selling book is Bully Market. She was a managing director at Goldman Sachs, lasted there for 18 years. Jamie and I go back to the analyst class at Goldman Sachs, the fateful analyst class, the summer of 1998. She might not remember me, but I remember our conversation. I remember her talking about scoliosis and the difficulty of wearing these pumps and walking around lower Manhattan and catching various trains to and from the inner part of the Garden State to get to one New York Plaza. And here you have this tell-all book. Um, I want to go back to your first bonus. You flicked at it. You know, we're paid something like $40,000, $45,000 a year, but you're called in. They played a mind game with you initially. You busted your tail. You kept your head down. You dealt with the wisecracks and the, you know, the hot dress spreadsheets and everything else and really delivered a star performance as an analyst to the extent that they gave you multiples of your salary as a bonus your first year. That's right. And it was shocking because when I was first called in, they said, well, you know, Jamie, bonuses are discretionary. We don't have to pay you anything. And I said, oh, what a fool I was thinking I would get a bonus. And they essentially, my total comp was something like triple my salary. And I just remember thinking it felt like a pile of like funny money from Monopoly. And It was the first experience I had with how money could really anesthetize you. It made me think of what my mom always said about childbirth, where when you hold that baby in your arms, you kind of forget about all the pain to get there. And so after I got that money and I made my family so proud, it was shocking success, shocking. And not only did I make more than my parents had after, you know, 30 year plus careers, I had a brother and sister 10 years my senior, both professionals, a pharmacist and a lawyer. I was making more than they were. And then, of course, you have to ask yourself, well, is it really all that bad? So was that when you broke bad? Would you say looking back, especially you talked about your grandmother's words earlier and that the fact the idea that this corrupted and it seems risible right now. In terms of what you made later on, in terms of what you were managing, in terms of your portfolio as a managing director there, you know, 120, 140 grand was Trump change, 
right? You're talking about the millions later in your life. You're talking about the big expenses, the car services, the first class tickets, the various expenses that these VP and partner level people deal with. But when would you say you broke bad? I remember certain innocence was lost when you were working on a presentation. I think it was in training or something, and you walked in on a couple of your, your you know, in your class, mid-coitus in the computer yes. lab room. Yes. I mean, that's just not supposed to happen at Goldman Sachs. Yeah. You know, for, for me, it was just like, I couldn't believe the audacity of these people. I was such a rule follower and I felt so lucky to get there. Goldman made me feel like you got the job everyone wanted. You mm. were a nobody from nowhere and we plucked you out of obscurity for this role. You better earn it every day. And the audacity of some of these people, I kind of felt like, well, you know what? A lot of them were trust fund kids. A lot of them had connections. They didn't value the opportunity quite like I did. So even though we took drug tests on day one, they were snorting lines in the bathroom that evening, you know, although, you know, I was working, you know, burning the midnight oil to do great on these presentations. They were literally like screwing around in the, you know, computer, in the computer lab. So to me, I felt like they were just allowed to just have this laissez-faire attitude where I felt like, I had to be, you know, be on my P's and Q's all the time in order to earn the spot I had. At which point, at which long commute back from one New York plaza or to the place, you know, crack of dawn, did you realize that I really don't like this? And look, I'm inexorably right now on the associate track, on the VP track. I mean, you stayed there for 18 years. At what point did you realize that this really isn't great, but I can't get out of it, that it was a bit of an abusive relationship. It was very early on that I realized that the role did not, that the culture did not align with my values. And you brought up something I think that's very key. You know, when you earn all this money on Wall Street, it's not your total compensation divided by 24, meaning you earn a 24th of it every, you know, two weeks, twice a month kind of thing. Instead, the vast majority of it is at the end of the year. And so you're always kind of waiting for those next few months to hit. I wasn't happy, but my parents really pushed me. They said, you know, Jamie, it's work. It's not fun. You know, um, trust me, what you're doing, you're going to set yourself up later on. And I'll never forget on my way to Jersey City, where I used to take the ferry or the, or the path train, there was a Jordash factory, like Jordash jeans. And every morning I'd be driving there at five in the morning and all these people would be walking to the Jordash factory, you know, with their paper lunch sacks in hand, ready to do their shift. And I would say, Jamie, who do you think you are? Like, you're not some trust fund kid who can dabble on Wall Street for a couple of years and then go kind of, you know, sit and work for the family business. These people are working hard. You need to work hard too. So really that kind of obligation I felt to my family spurred me on for years and years and years. And I felt like I was just so lucky. I had this spot that everyone wanted. And Goldman was very good at telling you, you know, 
This is the job everyone wants. You're nothing without us. You can only leave Goldman once. So I was so afraid to leave. That's the big joke of it all, Robin. Like I really thought I was a prisoner, but the joke was the door was always unlocked. I could have left any time. But the way the comp structure was, the magnitude of the compensation, the obligation I felt to my family of origin, it just pushed me to stay year after year after year. When did the misogyny hit a tripwire? I mean, you were actually assaulted. Again, I, it's it's crazy to me to read this here. I can understand to a certain level, infidelity happened a lot in the partner track. A lot of time, partners are away from their wives, long commutes to, I don't know, Bronxville or Connecticut. People, uh, you know, with adoring, rather beautiful associates and analysts from schools that had this, what, what do you call it? The Genevieve Goldman glow? Yes, right? yes. Things happen, drugs, money, intoxication, but you were actually hit and pushed yeah. and shoved. Talk to me about that. I felt that the toxicity, the misogyny, the discrimination really hit ahead once I started getting promoted. So in the beginning, all this nonsense is going on around me. I'm not going to play into it. In fact, they used to call me Sister Jamie. Because, oh, because I mean, the nonsense you're talking about in the book is when people would rate, when these traders would act boorish and rate women on exactly. and the spreadsheets and everything. You, you, you were disgusted, but you let it roll off your shoulders. I said, you know what? I'm keeping my eye on the prize. I'm going to be long-term greedy. I'm going to put my head down. I'm going to work hard and I'm going to, uh, you know, ignore it. It's nonsense. I don't want to be a part of it. In fact, the guys on the desk used to call me Sister Jamie because I would like, turn red when they would always talk about this stuff. And I would just, again, put my head down and work hard. And once I started getting recognized, and once I first got promoted to a manager, not managing director, but I managed a team, right. that's when people started looking at me and saw me as a threat. Because now I was eating their lunch. Now I was taking an opportunity that they felt was theirs. I was taking it away from them. So and that's when it started happening. So uh, would you would you illustrate the background of this physical assault? Yeah, um, sure. And and how how it happens in a place with all these cameras and everything and and HR culture. I again, I I this is not the 1950s or the 1980s or the 1970s. This happened at Goldman Sachs in the aughts. Yeah. So I became a manager and I managed a business and one of the guys who worked for me, it was a very awkward situation to begin with because I had essentially swapped roles with him. He had been demoted and I got promoted over him. So you can imagine he was very frustrated with me. On top of it, just a week or so before it was announced that I was getting promoted, he was getting demoted, he hit on me at an event to which I declined. So I think there was a little bit of, you know, what I always find interesting is when you get propositioned, in my experience, and someone passes, like, no, thank you. Not only are, not only is the person who propositioned you not embarrassed, they're almost pissed at you because I didn't take him up on it. So he was pissed at me that I didn't take him up on it. Then he was really pissed because I was now his boss. So it was an awkward situation which got even more awkward because this gentleman's wife started calling me on the desk. She knew who I was because we had met at, you know, different social drinks. And she had it in her mind that he was having an affair 
with one of our clients, which should not happen at Goldman Sachs, right? And so she would call and this affair he was having was the worst kept secret, but I had no proof. So I had never brought it up to anyone. I just kind of ignored it. But then she started calling me and it really tugged on my heartstrings because she was a lovely woman. She had some little kids at home. She was really desperate for help. And I tried to be nice to her, but finally the calls became too much and they were, they were a distraction at work. I mean, yeah, you can imagine. I can imagine. I, was, I can imagine. Right? So I went to my boss and I said, listen, this is what's happening. He said, I said, you know, there's a problem. If he's having an affair with a client, he really shouldn't. And he said, listen, I agree it's inappropriate, but I'm not getting rid of him. And I, I say the guy had something better than a 4.0 from Harvard. He was a scratch golfer. And so he got my partner and all the other partners access to all the golf courses across the country because he was friends with all the local golf pros at Augusta, at Baltistrol, at Pebble Beach, in Europe. So he said, listen, he said, why don't you just take him off the account? And then he's not having an affair with someone he's covering. I didn't want to make it seem like I was signaling this guy out, right? So I said, you know what? I'm fairly new to the team. Let me mix up all the account coverage. So he doesn't feel like he was singled out. He's no longer covering the person. And we'll go from there. But they're asking you effectively to be an accomplice in a bit of a cover-up. A hundred percent. But at this point, Robin, I had just been promoted. I really wanted to prove that I could do it. There were a lot of naysayers that only that kept saying I only got promoted because of my gender. And I really wanted to make the most of the opportunity. This was the first step, right? If Jamie Fiore can be a good manager and move this business forward, then maybe she could become a managing director someday. And let me ask you, you never, for as much as these guys talked about the culture of mentorship, you never had a true kind of C-suite level mentor that you could go to and confide in that wouldn't rat you out. Correct. That's Correct. just, that blows my mind for a place that hit on mentorship. By the way, parenthetical aside, I got to share this. The mentor was assigned to me who ended up being really verbally abusive. Uh, if you could Google him right now, he, he was part of an FBI stink. He's banned from the industry. The person <laughs> we were introduced to, a young Colombian-American Harvard grad who was the star associate who lectured our class. This is also a footnote. He was in a sting for an insider trading operation and spent time in a brutal Colombian prison. Mm. Uh, these were people who were, I, I'll never forget this because of the asymmetry of it for a place that talked about culture and mentoring and unconditional positive regard and a safe place so much as it, as it did. It really did suborn abusive people and shady people. It's always that disconnect between what they say in the business principles and in the press releases in the employee handbook and what really goes on. So this person physically assaulted you. So I pulled him aside to rearrange the coverage. He ripped up the coverage sheet, threw it in my face. I got up because I was physically feeling threatened. He pinned me up against the wall, told me he wanted to rip my effing face off. And, you know, how could I do this to him and screw with his livelihood, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I was shocked, absolutely dumbfounded. I panicked. I kind of whispered to kind of take him off the ledge. You know what I mean? It just felt like that kind of high pressure situation. Yeah. It was a Friday afternoon because you're always told at Goldman to send tough messages on a Friday afternoon. And I had anticipated he'd be disappointed on some level that he was losing this account. I got my 
my butt out of there. I was so upset that night. Here's the thing, I, though. You're working at Goldman Sachs on partner track, not at Bada Bing, you know, having to deal with Ralphie Cifaretto Cipper, or something. This blows my mind when I read I this. I know. Because this is, this is very base, crass behavior that you only read in kind of caricatures of Wall Street. You didn't feel like at that point you're hyperventilating. You could go downstairs, call your boyfriend slash husband, whatever was going on, pursue massive legal action, take the money that you made at Goldman Sachs and ride off into the sunset. And so I said, I'm going to talk to my manager about it, thinking, surely this has to be addressed. And the next day I went to my partner and I said, this happened. And he said, you're welcome to go to HR and voice your concerns. But I am telling you right now, I am not getting rid of him. So feel free to go to HR, but just imagine what it's going to be like when you have to continue working with him after you blew a whistle on him. There's no is- other recourse for you as a whistleblower person. There's no other protection. Again, is this pre is this pre all financial crisis stuff where you were afforded whistleblower protections? This was pre financial crisis. Mm. Yep. And, and there's so, no there's no safe space to go to. There's no person who recruited you. There's no one you could confide in. I mean, you were seeing a therapist personally? Of course. Of course. And you know what? In retrospect, because later on, fast forward years later, when I finally did go to employee relations, which is the creme de la creme of HR at Goldman. When I did finally have ER, the guts to ER, they ER call it, right? <laughs> when I did finally have the guts to go to ER, they sold me out. My boss said to me, We're not gonna get rid of him. We want you to succeed, Jamie. You're on managing director track. You know, we want you to have a great opportunity managing. And if you go to HR, your life's gonna be miserable. So think about it. And so but here's I'm the embarrassed deal. to As say, Robin, write, I didn't say anything. Your life is miserable. You become the mother of four children. You hardly see these kids. You had to lie, like I did, about leaving for client meetings if you wanted to go to a piano recital or something. That's right. And you had a lot of time, as I did, on the commute to think about this, to process this. In the mornings, passing the Jordash factory, in the evenings, in the car service, in the time away from the kids, the various, you know, appeals for infidelity, Xanax, whatever it is, all of the, the lurid stuff that you describe in this book. What was the tipping point. I guess there was a moment where you said, I'm done with this place and it's just about populating a spreadsheet for my exit route at this point. That's right. So having to make all these choices, like for example, not reporting the assault started to eat at me like acid. It was like I was acting total counter to who I was and I started really making bad decisions to cope. And bad decision one, was a lot of Xanax to get through my day and alcohol at night to almost anesthetize me from what I was doing. And then I had a family and I couldn't figure it out. I I was always so hard on myself. I wanted to be the mother I wanted to be, the employee I wanted to be. I felt like I was working so hard to be the wife, the mother, the employee, succeeding at nothing. And my worst decision was enter in one of my managers who started off being just a tremendous support of mine, you know, advocating for me, helping me get ahead, et cetera. And then, you know, it would be after work and he'd say, come on, let me take you out for a glass of wine. Let's talk about the day. And, 
you know, it was late anyway. I wasn't going to see my kids. And I'm embarrassed, Robin, that it let those drinks led to more drinks and more dinners and led to an affair. And the mic drop moment for me was being at this guy's house and my five-year-old daughter called me with a stomach ache, just innocently calling me, wondering when I was going to get home so I could snuggle her to sleep. And that was kind of this slap in the face, thinking back to my grandmother's words at that point, I don't know, 15 years before of what is it going to cost you? And I was working hard and I was making money for what? To not have a family at the end of it? And the the ironic thing, Robin, is I was never into material things, right? I was the TJ Maxx wearing woman. For me, money was about stability and making my family proud. It wasn't about like living up to some lavish lifestyle. And so that's when I sat down with my husband, begged for his forgiveness. He really understood that my bad choices had nothing to do with him. It had to do with me trying to cope with that crazy environment that Jedi mind tricked me into thinking I was nothing and no one. And at that point, we said, we're putting a date on it and we're working toward an exit plan. Now, the difficulty of doing this is on an exit plan at a place like a Goldman Sachs or a McKinsey or these places that are kind of elusive and everybody would love to cover them. And obviously Bloomberg and the Wall Street Journal and uh, tabloids, whoever it is, New York Post would love to blow up a story like yours. But they offer you, and this has become problematic in the Me Too years, NDA money and non-disclosure money. They'll give you the exit bonus contingent on you signing that you won't cooperate or you won't dish. So this calculation had to go through your head as you were thinking about the money you needed to leave this place and maybe go back into social work and other things versus the risk you were taking. This is one of the most lawyered up, powerful firms on the planet. Oh, I mean, I went to a lawyer and he said to me, you'll never beat Goldman Sachs. You'll never beat them. So he's like, your choices are sue, have your name be dragged through the mud, maybe win, or just Mm. suck it up, save some money and leave. And the joke of it all, Robin, was, you know, they made me feel like I would never earn a penny without them. In some ways- Here's what I didn't get reading the book. Were you not getting headhunter offers throughout your 18 years there? I was to an extent. The problem was once I was promoted- it's really hard to get a job as a managing director. Oh, wait, a math major managing director at Goldman Sachs. You're not getting calls left and right? I had some informational interviews. It was impossible to move laterally. Impossible. But it's an affirmation of your marketability. The fact that, listen, if you leave this place, you're going to find a life professionally on Wall Street after this. So I had had some informational interviews and what I found was it was really hard to move laterally once I was promoted because they felt like, okay, we don't have enough money to pay her. We don't have a big enough role for her. And then internally forget it because they want to save their managing director chips to promote from within. So they're not just going to- It's an up or out culture. I mean, if you stick around and they think that you smell, you're you're not being very productive, they nudge you out. And the issue is too, you know, so many of these businesses, my business was incredibly niche, incredibly niche. So, you know, back then, I think there's more of um appetite now for hiring off of broader skill sets. 
as opposed to direct roles. But back then, it's like I did a very specific role. So there weren't that many opportunities of those roles on the street. And then of those roles, they have to be careful if they bring a managing director in because they don't want to disenfranchise the people at their firms who are working up to that. So what did you do in terms of the end game, keeping notes, maybe slowly taking stuff home? Uh, was there quiet quitting involved? You're hearing that term lately. It's very hard. I remember as trying to, you know, the, my escape from Goldman and having to leave to the post office and send article clips to various publications that I wanted to work for. It's it's pretty difficult to do in a in a in a nonstop balls to the wall culture. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was more of a. I felt like I wanted to be able to take a breath and take a pause. And have a bit of a sabbatical. So I was very fortunate that I was able to do that. Because on top of it, I had another child who was very, very young. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to have her, I'm going to do my maternity leave, come back, get my last bonus and go. And so for me, it was more getting the courage to realize that I could still be successful out of that world. Because the joke of it is, it's like, I never, you know, you see people on Wall Street who really get obsessed with the lifestyle, you know, need that money because they have their several country clubs, they have their several houses, they have a very high allowance for clothing, private schools, etc. I wasn't addicted to the money that way. I was addicted to the identity where I really felt like I only existed as a managing director at Goldman Sachs. So once I realized that I was so much more than that, I was able to extricate myself. It's pretty amazing to look back at the bubble and realize that there's a world outside of, you know, David Solomon and Lloyd Blankfein and the partner track anywhere you work at. If you're at the New York Times, if you're at a steel mill, if you're working in City Hall where the city manager and the mayor is your primary concern, all these things, it's like kind of looking at the Milky Way compared to the broader universe. They're just so tiny compared to the gaze of your children and these things that are more important. And to that end, I want to talk about your, what is, what is it called when you come back from space and reacclimate to gravity and everything? Yes, but, yes. Well, in, in your case, it was a bit of a baptism by fire. Your day back with the kids and suddenly stomach bugs left and right. You talk about the irony of your daughter calling you as a five-year-old that night when you were at the peak of you know you being lost professionally, you were rewarded with stomach bugs left and right, and it was a shock, and it sent you into a temporary depression like, gosh, did I make a huge mistake in leaving Goldman Sachs? I'm covered in vomit. I'm taking my kids to the bathroom left and right, but you quickly readapted and, and, and found those sea legs as a mother. Yeah, and, and, and the realization that that I am just who I am and the realization that I was successful at Goldman because of who I was, because of my work ethic, because of my head for numbers. And it took a while. When I first left, I was so depressed because my whole identity to this world was being a managing director at Goldman. And so it took some time for me to say, you know what? I'm so much more than that. We as people are so much more than any one role that we do, whether it be a full-time mother or a managing director at Goldman or a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher. And so that's been the biggest gift of it all for me is to realize people are who they are. There's the being and then there's the doing. And the doing for money is just one aspect, one small aspect of our identity. 
So have you been getting approaches by various women who've been at Goldman or various other women? I mean, we've had Wall Street confessions on the show before. This is clearly endemic and rampant across all of professional services, not just investment banking. But what kinds of support and handholding have you been able to offer since publishing this book? I've heard from hundreds of people, which has filled me with some validation, also some sadness because it's still going on. Tales of people who have stood up to HR only to find out that their performance review went down straight away and then they were managed out right after that. I've heard from men, men who have had to become the primary caregivers of their kids and their firms have accused them of not being focused enough on their careers. Wall Street, insurance, medicine, law, even the government. Because what I'm finding, Robin, is you only need two people to have a power dynamic that is that is exploited. And I do think the underlying piece is people feeling so tied to their identity of their careers that they lose themselves in the process. So it's been great to hear from young people in the beginning of their careers unsure of what to do, as well as women still in their careers today trying to fight for equality and kind of runs the gamut across all industries, even Hollywood and film I've heard from people. So what I love most about my book is how it's really resonating across the board. Um, from all different people, all different backgrounds, women, men, uh, people of color, LGBTQ plus people. And that kind of, again, it makes me feel good that although I'm the only one talking, I'm representing a lot of people's stories. And where do you take this as a prospective social worker? To take it back to the very beginning, this is what you wanted to do out of Bryn Mawr and your parents kind of talked you out of it. They said, find a real paying job. And there are difficult ways. I mean, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line, but you took a long, winding, painful road to be able to have the courage of your convictions and the confidence to stand up on behalf of people now. And it makes you, these scars are very important for you to take out into the real world. Yeah. And I've loved... Now I do coaching with professionals, also, you know, students, just to, you know, even people just graduating college to really think critically about their careers and what they do for work and what they do for pleasure and making sure they have balance and fulfillment and not having to sacrifice who they are for what they do. So I feel like I've come full circle. And in some ways, I mean, would I have been a great social worker if I had started back in 1998? I'm sure I probably would have been, but it feels fulfilling now to bring my work experience, both the actual work experience of working at a big firm, the politics involved, you know, um, working on projects, that kind of skill set that I developed as a worker, but also tying it with the understanding I now have about why I did the things I did, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and helping workers today learn from some of my experience and make better choices for themselves. Jamie Fiore Higgins, former managing director of Goldman Sachs, way back in the infancy of 1998, was a classmate of mine in the Goldman Sachs Equities Division of 1998. The book is Bully Market, My Story of Money and Misogyny at Goldman Sachs. You have to read it. Please pick it up. Jamie, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Robin, thank you. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. We podcast to NPR, Spotify, And of course, Apple Podcasts, the link is fulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate, and recommend us. 
You can follow along on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. The handle is Full D Radio. And catch me weekly on MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening and back with you next week. 